Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. Every year, for the last probably seven or eight years, I have asked God for a direction, a focus, a, a similar uh, kind of a singular focus that we could together as a congregation dwell upon and kind of set our sights on to go together after something of a word or a phrase that God would embed in our hearts that would track us all year long. And usually I'll, I'll come up with a couple uh, different either words or phrases or something that may be uh, stirring in me and I'll, I'll kind of give it a little time, toss it over, pray about it. And, and I'm so excited this year for the word of the year that I want to share with you uh, through uh, not only just a banner and a word, but through an illustrated message that I want to share today. And then over the next several weeks, I want to kind of reinforce this concept or, or this principle. In fact, what we're going to talk about uh, today and really all year long is not just a principle, but it is an actual, literal, spiritual concept and presence of God. And we are going to focus this year on the presence of God. Our word, our focus is going to be on presence, the presence of God. In our everyday ordinary lives, it can, it can feel like and it can seem as though God is not near, that we can't feel or we can't sense the presence of God. But what I want us to do is, is maybe clear the clutter and get to the place where we can truly look through the lens of recognizing not only is our God omnipresent, he's all the time everywhere, but he is present spiritually with us even in the moments that we do not maybe acknowledge or understand or see that he's there. Of course, we can feel God in the glories and in the, in the times of praise and, and all the elation and the celebrations, but we also need to feel God in the mundane, in the common, in the ordinary, in those moments that seem to pass where nothing is, is really going on or, or really propelling you forward. God's presence is still there. So today I want to share with you out of the book of Exodus a, a concept that we see on the presence of God. Uh, one aspect of Christian worship that has always amazed me, mystified, maybe confounded me, is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Some call it Eucharist, which means a celebration or Holy Communion. And, and what I think is, is, is somewhat... Um, mystifying about this, mystery is, is wrapping around this, is that how does the concept of bread and wine become the body of Christ or remind us or present, represent the presence of Christ? After all, in the communion meal, which we're going to take later here in just a few moments, in the communion meal, the physical body of Christ is not present, but there is a very real spiritual presence of God. And so to gain the understanding into this special meal, we must go back into Jewish history and look at the first time that Passover or Eucharist was ever celebrated. And why was there a need for this meal? In Exodus chapter 12, you'll find that Moses had already gone to Pharaoh nine times, each time with a intensifying plague that was pronounced upon the land. There was a judgment that was coming upon e Egypt. Every time that Moses would go, he went with the mouthpiece and the voice of God, and he would speak to Pharaoh, let my people go. 
For 400 years, they had suffered in Egyptian slavery and bondage. And now God had sent a deliverer through the person of Moses, had raised him up at a time of life where you would assume that Moses would have been well past retirement age. We know from scriptural uh, indication that Moses was over 80 years old at the time that he went to Pharaoh. Now, most of us, when we get to 80 years old, think, I've done my work. I don't need to volunteer anymore. I don't need to serve. That's for younger people. Somebody else can take the reins now. I've done my job. And Moses finds himself at over 80 years old being sent to Pharaoh, his foreign land, the place where he used to live. He was raised in Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. For 40 years, he's found himself now on the backside of a desert, desolate, but he had a very real encounter with the presence of God. And from that, he received an instruction to go and to speak to Pharaoh. And nine times now, Moses has come with a judgment. Nine times, Pharaoh has said, I probably will, maybe I might, and then he don't. He changes his mind. I guess you could say Pharaoh had a problem with backsliding. He would slide back every time he would make a commitment. He would slide back. That's one of the reasons I don't like to, to start out a new year with uh, making everybody resolve to do something. The statistics are against us when we make New Year's resolutions. It says that 91% of New Year's resolutions never get resolved. We never follow through on 91% of our resolutions. And you know why that is? The primary reason is that our New Year's resolutions, the reason that we backslide is that our New Year's resolutions are usually outcome-based. I want to lose weight. I want to make more money. I want to get a better job. Instead of individual or person-based or character-based. And if we would base our resolutions on any time of life, not just in a new year, but if we would base our resolutions on becoming the kind of person that does the things that make for those outcomes, then we would have a whole lot higher percentage of following through on those resolutions. If we would make a, a resolution to say, in this new year, I am going to be a person who exercises regularly, then the weight will follow. I am going to be a person who has set a budget, then the financial order comes to the house over time. I am going to be a person who is going to be more intentional about my spiritual life and my spiritual disciplines. And so every single day, I'm going to focus some kind of time on increasing my spiritual activity with the Lord Jesus. Then you're going to be a kind of person that will show in 12 months that you have had growth in the spiritual area. Instead of just saying, I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. You know how, how hard that that is? You can find Bible reading plans, but you get to about Leviticus and you're in February and you're like, man, I don't know if I can make this to December. This is tough. That's why we started last year with just a New Testament reading plan. And if, if you would like to do that, we, we have that on our website. You can click on that 555 and, and that's a way you can go through. But all of those things are commendable. All of those things are wonderful. And should we make goals and resolutions and plans and dreams? Yeah, we should map out and we should have all of those kinds of things. But more important, we should be becoming the kind of person that would put ourselves in the trajectory of the outcomes that we want. Pharaoh found himself a backslider going back on his word, going back on what he said he would do because he was never really truly a character man. He was a character for sure, but he didn't have character in his life. And so he was wrestling with whether or not to follow through on his commitments. Each time that Pharaoh would backslide just a little bit, his heart would get hardened. And in Pharaoh, 
is a lesson to all of us, that each time that we allow that little fox, you know, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's not those big things that we fall down on. It's, it's some kind of little thing that we've let in the door. Every time that Pharaoh found himself backsliding on a commitment, his heart would get just a little more hard. That's why when you miss church for a couple weeks, it's not a problem. You miss church for three weeks, it's not really that big a deal. But before long, it's two months and three months, and you don't even hunger anymore for the fellowship of the saints. And so what happens is there's a hardness that happens over our hearts, and we we miss our Bible reading, we miss our devotional prayer, we miss that time fellowshipping in our small group. And so what happens is we distance, we distance, we get further and further away from the lifeline that was giving us a connection to the Lord. Pharaoh's heart was being hardened every time that he said, I'll do it, and then he didn't follow through on it. Now, one final plague was going to be pronounced over the land. This final plague was going to be the death of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. Now, I need you to notice this, that even the Israelites, the people of God, even they were going to be subject to this final plague. All the other plagues, they had to kind of walk through and they had to see these things, but they weren't uh, intimately touched with. But this final one, without following God's proper instruction, even they would be subject to this plague. The firstborn of every house in Egypt. Now, I want to just share a couple passages here with you. It says in verse 12 of Exodus that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. In verse 2, it says... This month shall be a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Pretty appropriate for our day today, for our time to look at, okay, this Passover happened at the very beginning of a new season. There was something new about to break onto the scene and God saying to them, this month, shall be a beginning of months. In other words, don't look back to everything that you've been encountering in Egypt. All of the trouble, all of the struggle, all of the sorrow, you need to put that in the past. This month is a beginning of months for you. It's the first month of a brand new year for you. It's a fresh start. And each time that you and I, get this, each time that we celebrate around the Lord's table, it is a new beginning for us. This is why Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Well, I have a question for you. How often is often enough? Well, that might depend. How often do you need a new start? How often do you need a turning of the page? How often do you need a freshness of the Lord in your life? I don't see in scripture any place where it puts a limit on how often that you can partake and celebrate around the Lord's table. But it says, as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Verse 3 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th month, uh, on the tenth of this month, each man uh, shall take for himself a lamb. Everybody say, a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. Household means the entire house that you live in. Everybody who is under your charge, everyone who has given to you the respect, the honor, the dignity of being raised in your care, your household. And, verse 4, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him eat with his neighbor next to his house and take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, shall you make account for the lamb. So not only do the people of God have a household, which are their biological family, but then God takes it to another level and says, you have other people that are connected to your life that are vitally important, 
We call it an extended household, friends and relatives, friends and family. You know as well as I know, there are some friends that you have that are closer than some bloodline family members that you have. So what are those? They are extended household. Or when we get into the New Testament, we have another word for it, a Greek word, oikos. Our oikos is our extended household. It's those eight to 15 people who are connected into our lives in such a way that we're influencing them and they're influencing us. Verse four tells us that if there's not a house big enough to, to slay a lamb and to have a lamb for themselves at Passover, go and share with your neighbor. And this is the generosity that we see all throughout God's kingdom that we, we will likely and gladly share with our uh, abundance for those that need and are in a place of, of uh, uh, having a, a resource connection to us. So nobody is left out in this meal. Here's what it says. Everybody will have an opportunity to partake. There is plenty to go around. Verse five, it says, not just any lamb, but a spotless lamb. It has to be the right age. It has to be the right kind. It has to be spotless. It has to have the right purity. It is very costly, and the right lamb is very desirable. What did, what did they sacrifice at Passover? They sacrificed a, a lamb. It was a lamb as unto God, a lamb for God. Look at verse 7. It says, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. This is the law of first mention. The law of first mention in scripture means that anytime you see something first talked about or first mentioned, then you note that because you will likely see it reappear again in other places. And you can kind of reference it back, chain it back to that event and see how does it connect? How is it interwoven into the life of the people of God from very beginning and from early times? And so it says, take the blood of this slain lamb and put it on the doorpost. Now, if it were me and I were just simply wanting to make sure that the, the death angel, as, as we know what happens is this plague, the death angel is going to pass through the land. It's going to kill every firstborn if it doesn't see the blood. And so what I would do to make sure that the death angel doesn't come through is I would probably mark my door. Like, don't come in here right? This door is closed. Don't come in here. My family's in there. There are precious, valuable possessions behind this door. I'm just going to mark this door, right? I'm going to say, no, don't enter that door. But that's not what the scripture said. The scripture says, take the blood, don't put it on the door, but put it on the door posts. This is the door posts and the lentil. This is the lentil. So put it on the posts and the lintel. Apply the blood to the posts and to the lintel. Do we have that picture of the, uh, what, it, what it would really look like? There's a, a door post and a lintel. In ancient Egypt, what they would actually do is they would build their house out of mud and stick and, and mortar. And the house itself was constructed in such a way that it would likely perish in a fire or in a flood or some kind of disaster could take away the house. But the door was made in such a way that it was constructed with stone. That's a better picture than what this is. But the door was made uh, in the door posts and the lentil. Those three areas were made with stone because the ancient Egyptians believed 
that stone was the only material that could last into the afterlife. And so if their house, if their, their physical house represented their family, then at least the doorpost and the lintel being represented in stone would have a chance of surviving in the afterlife. But then they took it one step further because in those doorposts and lintel, they would literally chisel and write the names of all of the family members in that area of stone. So that if the flood came, if the fire came, doesn't matter what happened to the rest of the exterior of the house, there was some material that was strong enough to make it through the storm. There was some material strong enough to preserve the legacy and the reminder of the people whose lives meant something inside of that house. They would etch the names of the family members. You can still find them in Egypt today in some of the pyramids and some of the unearthings. They find names etched all throughout the stones. Many, many times, especially the more prominent that the family was, the family's name would be etched again and again and again in these stones. For 400 years, God's people since the death of Joseph until the time of Moses, for 400 years, they had been in Egyptian slavery and bondage. And what do you think happened over time to the principles, the practices, the observances of God's people? Of course, they observed some things of the Lord, but they also allowed to, to seep in the other cultural norms of their day. In 1619, a group of English settlers came to new, new lands to be found in North America. They came with intentions of finding precious minerals and gold, growing great crops and sending back the, the bounty to motherland, to England. But then there was another wave of settlers that came through, pioneers looking for a new land. They were called the Puritans. They came with ambitions of having a freedom of religion, not a freedom from religion. And these new settlers to this new land set up some of the timeless and most well-venerated and respected institutions of their day. Bible training schools, you would know them today as Ivy League schools, dedicated to the propagation of the word of God by teaching and training ministers for the word of God, Harvard, Yale, Ivy League schools. In over about 400 years, we have seen that some of these greatest institutions founded upon the principles of Judeo-Christian values have allowed to seep in the culture and the ways of the world. Have they forgotten wholesale what they were founded on? No, you can go and you can find inscriptions scribbed on stone. To this day, on their campuses, dedications inscribed to thanksgiving to God. But in academia and in their halls of higher learning and education, they're too smart for that God. They outthink that God. That God is passe no longer fitting in with the cultural norms. And so what has happened is over 400 years, even the church in America, come on, even the church in America has allowed to seep in 
the culture and the ways of the world. And I'm not talking about whether you have smoke or lights or your sanctuary is dark or light. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on the temple of the Holy Spirit. You and I are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And if we allow anything polluted or foreign or adulterated to come into the temple of the Holy Spirit, then we have profaned the name of the God that we serve. But if we look at our church structures today, what I would say American churchianity I didn't misspeak. American churchianity is the way that we have formed a culture of, okay, we have now a professional clergy. The pastor, that's his job to visit the sick, to reach out to the poor, to preach to the people, to be the CEO of the church. You will never find in the Bible that it is the pastor's job to be the CEO of the church. What you find in the Bible is that we as God's people are a chosen people, a special people, a royal priesthood, that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. What you will find in the scripture is that many of the things we are doing in our churches today are adoptions from the culture. And I'm not saying that they're all wrong, but even the very setting of doing this today convicts my heart because the early church did not do church the way we do church. They didn't do church with one person speaking up on a stage while everybody else was out in rows. They did church in circles, Amen. small groups, meeting from home to home, breaking bread. What do you think that was? It was communion, breaking bread and fellowshipping, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs into the Lord, building up one another, growing one another, going through the motions of life together, experiencing the presence of God in the midst of the ordinary. Do you have a connection where you can get into a circle and you can share ideas with people. You can ask the hard questions and really look at the scriptures together to say, here's what I think about this, but I don't know if what I think about this is what I should think about this. When was the last time that you allowed someone's iron to sharpen your iron? More than just sitting in a church service or watching it online and saying, oh, that was a nice message. I think I'll compare that with the one down the road. And I think I'll compare that with the one across town or the one over uh, on the other coast. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've been told that studies tell us now that since COVID, people are now attending about five churches. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Thank God for the information explosion. But there is something that is valuable about the koinonia fellowship face-to-face Someone's hand on your shoulder saying, it's okay, brother, it's okay, sister, we're gonna get through this together. Amen. We have allowed churchianity of America to isolate us into our silos to where we no longer have this kind of close fellowship and communion as the Lord would desire, but we have allowed things to seep in. And so the ancient Israelites allowed to seep in some of the practices, no doubt, of that day. And so I can only surmise that when God told them to apply the blood to the doorpost and the lentil, it could be, I don't have Bible on it, but we have historical data to tell us that the Egyptians, they were etching the names of their family members in that stone. So it could be that God's people said, you know what, that's not a bad practice. The people in my house are valuable to me. I'm gonna etch the names of my family, Carson, Caden, and Holly. I'm gonna etch the names of my family in that stone because I want them to live on forever. You know, it's amazing. We sometimes get this high-minded notion that God only 
works in, a, in this way, like in, in our vein. But I want to tell you, God can take even the things that we have adopted and, and maybe aren't necessarily biblical, but we've adopted them. Even God can redeem those things because he said, when you apply the blood, I just want you to cover in the blood the names of your family members. I just want you to go ahead and put it on the doorpost and the lentil. And so I think that today every believer can say, thanks be to God that my family is covered by the blood, that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And when those books are open, I'm going to be found there because what's inside that house is precious. It's valuable. He said, apply the blood in a specific and strategic place. The law of first mention, the blood being applied. In Deuteronomy 6.4, it's, it's probably the most well-learned and, and, and known scripture for any Hebrew, for any Jewish person. And it's called the Shema or the here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Everyone knew this. It was, it was the fidelity to saying, I am in relationship with the one and true living God. Because in the day they lived, there were lots of gods being worshiped, but they wanted to teach this one singular principle. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. But if you go on down to verse 8, it says, and bind them as a sign on your hands and on the frontlets of your eyes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And take this singular revelation of our God being one and bind them on your hands and on the frontlets of your eyes. Again, we see it mentioned. Something being bound there. You look at uh, even the, the uh, observant Jews today in Israel, and you'll find that they have phylacteries with the word of God that is tied around their head, that is a frontlet on their eyes. It's between their forehead. It's like the lentil of their body. The doorpost being the heart and our mind being the lentil. Hebrews uh, 10 and 16, we don't really know who the writer of Hebrews was, but we do know in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is the book that is most uh, closely connecting what the Old Testament practices were to New Testament Christianity. And so there was a great comparison of how the old law was just a shadow of the things to come. And now the, the revelation of those things are here in Christ. It says this, it says in, in 10, 16, my laws shall be written in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. So again, the etching of the word of God into the canvas of our lives. Now, when I look at a door, a door has both an entry and an exit. A door can both be closed and be opened. And usually when I'm praying a prayer, especially for a turning of a page or a passing of a year, usually I'm praying a prayer for all of God's open doors for the coming year. God, open the doors, open the floodgates of heaven, open the doors. I want to walk through all the open doors. But in hindsight, in retrospect, somebody sitting here this morning is looking back on the previous 12 and saying, God, thank you for some closed doors. I'm so glad you shut up some doors that I was going to walk through and you stopped me from walking through them. I know I look back and I think, oh God, thank you so much for closing a door that I tried to open. And here's the danger in American churchianity 
in American consumeristic culture, in the prosperity that we have in this nation, which I thank God being a prosperous person is a whole lot better than being a poor person. I've been both and I thank God that I'm not poor. I've had little and I've had more and I like more better than I like little. Can I get an amen? But here is the problem with having some resources. Here is the problem with having some ingenuity. Here is the problem with having experienced some success in the previous 12 months, is that when you come up to a closed door and you have resources and you have success and you have pedigree and you have uh, some kind of, of wherewithal that you can do things and you have confidence, you can, and sometimes we do, just barge right through the doors. Sometimes in our own effort, we make doors open and walk through them. And God says, that's fine. You can do that if you want. But sometimes there's blessings in closed doors, not just open doors. Think about that this year when you're praying a prayer, God, open a door. Maybe you need to say, nevertheless, thy will be done. God, if you want to close the door, slam it shut in my face. I'm okay with that because you're gonna show me something better on the other side. But then look at verse 11. Look down to verse 11, it says, and thus shall you eat it with your belt on your waist, with sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste for it is the Lord's Passover. Now, most times I would say that God does not work in hurry. God is not the author of speed it up, hurry, you know, get, get out there real fast and do it. Usually I find that God works in the still small voice. Amen. Usually God is not in haste to do what he wants to do, but God plays the long game in our lives. But look at the, what the verse says here. Verse 11 says, when you sit down to eat this Passover meal, you need to put your belt on your waist, get your staff in your hand, put your sandals on your feet, and you need to make it quick. Eat this meal because God is doing a new thing. God is doing something that you've never seen before. Law of first mention, you've never seen this happen before. Eat this meal in haste. We go over to the New Testament and we see that there are times when someone gets a direct word from God, like Peter, when he was told to go straightway to Cornelius' house. That, that there were people that were ministering in certain areas and Jesus would go to an area and then straightway he would go to another area. And it was like, wh wh why such fast pace? Why don't they just slow down and enjoy the moment a little bit? Because when God gives you a specific and direct instruction, you don't need to consult five people and ask them what they think and if they'll pray about it. No, when God gives you a word in haste, you do what God says to do. Amen. And so God gave them this instruction. You need to do this and do it quickly. Do this in such a way that you do it right now. Verse 12, it says, for I shall pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both of man and beast against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's the instruction. God says, if you don't apply the blood, whether you are of Israelite descendancy and have Jewish blood or not in your veins, I need to see the blood on the doorpost because a closed door is not gonna keep out the death angel. Only the blood 
keeps out the death angel. Only the blood is the protection against the plague against your life. Only the blood is the protection against the hex and the witchcraft that someone has tried to bring upon your life. Only the covering of the blood of Jesus. That's what matters the most. You see, even the people of God would have been subject to the plague. They had to deal with the frogs and the locusts and all the other, the blood in the stream. They had to deal with all of that. It was happening in their land. And I think that we, we again, in, in, in American churchianity, we get this mindset that we just need to tell everybody, come to Jesus so they have no more troubles and God will never allow us to go through anything of suffering or trial or conflict. We're gonna be spared from all kinds of troubles. That's not Bible. God's word says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. In other words, God is not simply going to just deliver us from every problem. He is going to deliver us through our problems. And this is exactly what, if they would obey the instruction, if they would apply the blood, then there would be a Passover. And here's what God said, when I see the blood, I will Passover. The death angel sees it and realizes, what, what does passing over mean? When the death angel saw the blood, what the death angel saw was death has already happened here. The lamb has already been slain. And when the evil one comes seeking you in 2023, what they're going to see when you're covered with the blood of Jesus is that's a dead man. That's a dead woman. Death has already happened there. I can't touch them. There's nothing I can do. The blood has been applied. He said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. And God was marking out a brand new beginning of deliverance for his people. Now, I want to fast forward to another familiar scene, the Passover supper. For thousands of years, the disciples and followers of Jesus, who were of Jewish descent, had observed a supper, a meal. We call it today the Seder supper, the Seder meal. But they had done this, and so in a borrowed upper room, the night before Jesus was betrayed, we see him observing with his disciples the Passover meal. And oftentimes we get in our minds that they broke a little bread, they drank from a cup, and, and it went on. But actually, there's something deeper, there's something more significant that is happening at this table, something of great consequence that is taking place as Jesus is about to represent to them that he is the Passover lamb, the one that they had read about, talked about and known about all their life long from the Egyptian slavery deliverance. He is that Passover lamb. The Bible says that Christ was offered in the midst of his days, not while a babe in Bethlehem, but in the midst of his days at the cross, we see this symbol of Passover and that's where the blood was applied. Luke 22 and 17 says this, then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink. Somebody say, I will not drink. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. <clears throat> Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup in the new covenant and my blood, which was shed for you. Here he is identifying himself as the Passover lamb. Now, 
in this meal that Jesus observed, it wasn't just passing around a cup and eating some bread. There were actually four cups in this meal. The first cup was the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification means I am setting you apart from all the other people on the earth. You are going to be a special chosen people. You are going to be my own precious possession. I am sanctifying you for my own purposes. Therefore, I am bringing you out of the bondage, the burdens, the taskmaster that is what you know of Egypt. Spiritually, Egypt today for us is the ways of the world. And God brings us out through sanctifying us or setting us apart for his specific purpose. And they passed around that cup and they would have drank that cup. The next one was the cup of deliverance. The cup of deliverance in the Seder meal and in that early upper room meal would have been, I am going to not only take you out of the land and separate for myself, but I am going to deliver you from all of the taskmasters that you had in the past. I'm going to deliver you from even the memory of what it was to be a slave in Egypt. You are my chosen people. The third cup is the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption was passed around saying, you are now going to be bought with a price. Redemption is a lamb being slain at great price, spotless lamb. Remember, it was a lamb that was sought after. It had to be a certain age. It had to be valuable. And so the cup of redemption means that I will bless you by redeeming you, by buying you, by doing something you cannot do for yourself, the cup of redemption. And it says here that Jesus passed around the cup and he told them, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my father's kingdom. The fourth cup is the cup of consummation, meaning what has been begun inaugurated is going to be finalized in this fourth cup. The finalization for them was that they were out of Egypt. In the Old Testament, they were out of Egypt. They were delivered. They had been passed over. The death hadn't touched them. And now they were coming into a new land. Jesus, we never find, drank of the literal cup at the Last Supper, but his Disciples, it was passed around for them because he was going to the cross as the Passover lamb. Neither did any of them, from what we can read in the text, drink out of the cup of consummation on the Last Supper. This isn't stuff they teach you in Bible class. They hadn't drank out of the cup of consummation because Jesus didn't pass that one because the supper was interrupted. Remember? Go and do what you must do, Judas. Go and do the one that should betray me. He already knew it was going to happen. The supper was interrupted, and they didn't get to the fourth cup, which symbolically means that when we, as often as we do this, drink of the Lord's body, take of the Lord's body, drink of his blood, when we take of the communion supper, we are just continuing a meal that was interrupted in the first century, 
at the Last Supper, we are continuing as Christ followers to do as he commanded us to do, as he said to do. And we never find after the resurrection that Jesus, even in all of his appearances, that Jesus ever drinks anything. Now, we do see another element of the Lord's Supper, and that is his body, the bread. He represented it. Now, the bread that we use a lot of times in communion services, a big loaf of bread, but actually it would have been unleavened bread because leaven represents sin. And so this bread had to have a sinless, spotless look to it. But there are some markings about matzah bread that have brown lines, which represent bruising, long lines, which represent stripes. And there's holes in this bread, if you can see that. It was like it has been pierced. And because it has no leaven, it can't rise. And our lives are to seem like and to look like the death and the dying and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. No leaven, the sin is out. Are we pierced? Are we afflicted? Yes, we get, we get pierces all the time. Are we bruised? Yes, we, we have heartaches and bruises. Are there long stripes and lines? Yes, like the lines and the whips that was on Jesus' back. But he said, this is his body. And so as we do our service unto God in observing Holy Communion. We do this as the physical presence of Jesus is gone, but spiritually he is present because there are really four bodies of Christ. The first body of Christ was the physical Jesus. The second body of Christ is the memorial body like we see in the bread and the wine. The third body of Christ is the church, the ecclesia, the people of God. This is, this is the mystical body of Christ. It's a mystery how that people who speak a different language, that live in a different region, that have different cultural norms, all find themselves, billions of them today, worshiping the Lord on the first day of the week, on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We all who name the name of Christ, who have been redeemed by the lamb, who have had the blood applied to the lentil and the doorpost of our hearts and our lives, call upon the name with a pure heart. We are the people of God, the church. This is a mystery. And the fourth body of Christ is his triumphant, glorified body, which we'll see one day at his return. Four bodies of Christ but God is present. Physically, he's not here. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for us, but spiritually, God is present. So what are the benefits of communion? There are at least three. The first one is a spiritual healing. When we take of communion, there is a spiritual healing. Our transformed human spirit and soul receives something that is dynamic and real and life-giving. It's like after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking on the road to Emmaus and these two companions are walking and they finally get to the place where they were to, to lodge for the night. And it says that they were talking, conversing with Jesus and didn't even know that he was there. But when he broke the bread, he disappeared. And then their eyes were opened. Spiritually, they had received this, this healing because they were sad and sullen and downcast. And now they're alivened. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us 
when he talked to us on the way. Spiritual revitalization, revitalization is a benefit of communion. Emotional healing is a value and a benefit of communion. When Jesus took that crown of thorns on his head, it says that the blood flowed down his head. The lentil of his body, the lentil of our lives, symbolically representing we being purchased with a price. Our emotional seat is in our mind and our heart. And things that we go through, things that we see, things that we hear, things that happen to us can scar and mark and, and really put an indelible impression upon us. And we carry these things all throughout our lives. And when we take of communion, what we can do is we can say, I release this, this thorn, I release this thorn. I release this piercing, this emotional stress. I release it to the Lord. And the third benefit of communion is physical healing. It restores health to our body. It says that when the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, here's what it says, that they had just observed the Passover meal. They came out of the land of Egypt, loaded down with the wealth of Egypt. They basically paid them to leave. And the Bible says there was not one feeble one among them. That means physical health. They came out healthy, happy, and whole. They were restored to what God wanted them to do all along. So how does a person qualify to take communion? Well, number one, you must take by faith. The scripture tells us to examine ourselves. That is confession and repentance. You do that between you and God. Examine yourself. Make sure that you're in proper relationship with God. Or this is the good time to come into proper relationship with God. You admit that you're not righteous, that only Jesus is. You believe upon the Lord Jesus for your salvation. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can take communion today. According to John Wesley, communion is a sacrament that is an outward sign of an inward spiritual grace. There's nobody to judge you today, whether or not you're gonna take or if you're worthy. This is between you and God. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the upper room with his disciples and he took of this holy meal he lifted up the bread. He said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup, the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant. What Jesus was saying was, I am the Passover lamb the one you have memorialized, the one you have commemorated all your life long, this cup, my blood, being applied to the doorpost and the lentil, being applied at the cross, my blood. Take as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And he passed the cup.